a message that had something to do with freedom. And so, as I'm looking for Scripture that has to do with freedom, it occurs to me, I've preached on this a time or two before, and at the risk of resurrecting old sermons, which I very rarely do, I took some pieces out of some other sermons, and I'm confessing to you up front that this sermon is a compilation of uh, scripture and sermons about freedom. And so this one is called Called to Freedom, and it opens with uh, a passage from the Gospel of John. It says, Then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in Him, If you continue in My word, you are truly My disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered Him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying, You will be made free? Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, anyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So as I look at that passage from John, and I think, what are the founding documents of freedom for us as Americans. And I saw so many examples of tradition this weekend at Freddie's graduation. The Airman's Creed. The National Anthem. All the pomp and circumstance that goes with that. And inside, when you see that, it builds up this national pride. We're proud to be Americans, aren't we? We are. And we have a lot to be proud of because our freedom was founded in something bigger than ourselves. Maybe these words sound familiar to you. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government 
laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its power in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. Do we recognize those words? Are we, are we remembering our history class? These words written a long time ago in terms of our nation's experience. But not so very long ago when we consider the grand scheme of God's creation. These are the opening paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. 240 years ago, in about a week, 240 years that this profound radical document set the course for more than two centuries of American individualism, self-sufficiency, pioneer spirit, built a nation to become a world power. You remember these words? Now there's another founding that we can talk about, and that's the founding of the Methodist Church, which went through countless morphs and struggles and changes. And it might surprise you that our founding fathers and John Wesley and those that founded the Methodist movement were not at all in agreement concerning the American colony's desire to be free and independent from the rule of Britain. Here's a little history. See, Wesley was loyal to the crown of England. And he was an Anglican priest, so he was loyal to the Church of England. The Methodist movement was not a church back in those days. It was just that, a movement within the Anglican church. And so, while Wesley was an Anglican priest and loyal to the English church, he was often at odds with the corruption within the church. Now, he was for religious freedom, but he was no supporter of the American cause for liberty. In fact, he wrote in a paper called A Calm Address to the American Colonies, which was published just one year after the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He says, Ten times over, in different words, you profess yourselves to be contending for liberty, but it is a vain, empty profession unless you mean by that threadbare word a liberty from obeying your rightful sovereign, meaning the king, and from keeping the fundamental laws of your country, England, and this undoubtedly it is which the confederated colonies are now contending for. See, Wesley had no love for the American Revolution. And American Methodists in the colonies were quick to detach themselves from Wesley and his political stance. He was for England. He was for king and country. But 
we can take from that little bit of history. And we can see, I think, that it firmly establishes that liberty is often a matter of perspective. See, the founding fathers proclaimed that liberty meant separation from British rule. And John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist movement, proclaimed that liberty was subject to the sovereignty of law. So revolution in Wesley's mind was lawlessness. So how is it that two points of view concerning liberty, those of the founders of our country and that of the founders of our church, both sides professing belief in and obedience to their creator, how could they be so fundamentally at odds with one another? I mean, they both can't be right, can they? So while you're thinking about that, think, think about this. In Galatians 5, which is the uh, um, epistle for today. Galatians 5, it says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So maybe it's not a question of who's right and who's wrong. Maybe it's a question of what really constitutes liberty. Not in the world view, but in God's kingdom. So if we fast forward 240 years to present day America, we see everything that the founding fathers established right here and right now. This is the culmination of it. You're living it. You're living in the midst of it. And there's no question that this nation is far and above any other in terms of freedom and the liberty afforded to its people. But the other side of that is we have to admit that it's far from perfect. It's far short of even our very basic rudimentary understanding of the glory of God and what He intends for His kingdom and for His people. See, we only have to look around us and see the evidence of the broken, fallen world in which we live. The fact that we have to have a food pantry in this country. The fact that even in this great nation, we have people who can't afford basic necessities, food, shelter, clothing, health care. And the government, in all of its worldly wisdom and might, falls short to solve even these basic problems. 
And then when you throw into the mix complex issues of civil rights, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, defining the boundaries and division of government, all of these complex issues that face us today. It occurs to me that our quest for independence and liberty, which began 240 years ago, seems to have spiraled into something that the Founding Fathers may not have intended. See, the Declaration of Independence, while it's a document true to its title, if we're talking about the English crown, is also very much a declaration of dependence on the divine providence of God. And could it be that we have detached ourselves from the truth concerning liberty and freedom? And so was Wesley correct saying that can there ever really be liberty in the absence of the authority of law? And while we're at it, whose law? Which brings me to Romans 13. We often use this passage of Scripture to give authority, the authority of God to whatever government we have. Romans 13 talks about the authority of government. And most translations read, there is no authority except from God. Well, I did a little digging. The original Greek word there is hupo, which means under rather than from. So a more correct translation might be, there is no authority except under God. See, if we say that all authority is from God, the implication might be that God endorses or approves all governments. And I wonder if that is indeed the case. But if we say that all authority is under God, then the implication is that legitimate governments are those which uphold God's righteous virtues and values. And that any move outside of those boundaries might be a good indication that whatever government is in place might have usurped the authority and might be therefore illegitimate. Whoa, Pastor. God upholds the principle of government. He does not necessarily condone the behavior of government. Now, what does that mean to us as Christ followers? See, Christ followers have a responsibility to participate in the governmental process. It means we have the responsibility to live within the laws established by governments. It means we have the responsibility to pray for and support our leaders in government. 
But it doesn't ever mean that we have to put government, govern, government policies or even laws above God and the Word of God. See, what we have to understand is that this position, that of putting God ahead of the government, is what put Jews and then Christians at odds with kings and emperors and principalities and governments since we've been writing down history. It means that like Jesus was during his earthly ministry, the pursuit of God today and the authority of Christ over government and earthly authority makes you and me radicals in the worldview. How many of you have ever thought of yourself as a radical? We're radicals. We are radically different. We are radically different, radically opposed to the world's fallen state. We are radically at odds with sin and death. We are radically against aborting babies. We are radically against redefining and cherry-picking the sacred word of God to suit our own agendas. We are radically in favor of righteousness and holiness and the things of God. That in and of itself makes you a radical. Sorry. See, we have as free Americans this opportunity to express our radical Christian viewpoint every time we go to the polls. And if we take it in the context of what the godly nature of freedom is, and maybe we should, maybe we should look at that definition once more. God created humans with the ability to make choices. And in that regard, we have freedom. But our freedom is limited to God's authority and sovereignty. Remember what God told Adam in the Garden of Eden. He says, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. That's freedom, but with limits. You see, a lot of people erroneously think that freedom is complete autonomy, which is the ability to do whatever you choose without fear of judgment from a higher authority. The truth is that nothing in God's creation has autonomy. We live by the limits God places on us. Our freedom is limited by God's freedom, and only God has absolute freedom. God's freedom trumps our freedom. That is not a political endorsement. God's freedom trumps our freedom. That's, such a, that's so unfortunate. God's freedom trumps our freedom. Society today leans towards secular humanism, which is human autonomy. We cry liberty, equal rights, tolerance, diversity... All of these lofty words. And if we don't like the restrictions placed on us by Scripture, we simply ignore the Scripture in light of everything that we cry about. 
See, our watchword has become fairness when it should always be righteousness. We have replaced in this country God-given liberty with something less than. With a slavery of universalism. Universalism is the thought that there are many paths. All paths lead to God. It's a false teaching. And in doing that, in, in accepting as a culture that all paths lead to God, we mistake tolerance for love. The lack of accountability inherent in tolerance is the most unloving thing that we could possibly do for one another. When we turn a blind eye to unrighteousness so as not to offend, we clear the pathway to hell for the unrighteous. The loving thing to do is to speak the truth in love. Not leave them in their unrighteousness. And when we accept that our liberty is God-given and therefore under His authority, when we submit to His authority as given to us in the Word, the Bible, then we cease rebellious efforts to be autonomous and to make our own rules then and only then do we enjoy freedom. We will have an opportunity to choose our leader. The most powerful position in the free world. And there are those in public office right now who do not share your radical Christian viewpoint. There are those running for that office who do not share your radical Christian viewpoint. There are those who would, if given the opportunity, silence the voice of the church in the world today. So while I will not, it's not my place to tell you how to vote or who to vote for, I can tell you, and I have told many of you personally, privately in the past, how I make my choice. I make my choice by lining up all of the pertinent issues of the day and then going to God's Word and seeing how does God's Word Line up with the issues. What does God say about the issues? Once I've done that, I line up the candidates and see what they say about the issues. And then I see what they say, how that matches up to God's Word. And then it's just a process of elimination. 
I can tell you, you will not find a perfect candidate. You will not. Unless Jesus Christ himself is running for president, you will not find a perfect candidate. But you have a responsibility to participate in the process. And so you have to choose the best one based on the one who most closely matches your radical Christian world view. It really is that simple for Christians, I think. So where do we go from here? We a congregation of radicals. 240 years later, where do we go next? And I would submit to you that there are two things that we need right now more than anything. The first thing is prayer. We need prayer now more than ever. In 2 Chronicles 7, it says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. See, God hears the prayers that radiate from penitent hearts. Prayers of confession and repentance move God into the actions of forgiveness and healing. The second thing we need now is another declaration. A declaration that builds on the one our founding fathers ratified, one that reaffirms the original intent to honor those unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that were given to us by our Creator. We need a declaration as individuals, but also collectively as members of the body of Christ, the church. A declaration not of independence, but of absolute dependence on God. So let's ratify our own declaration of dependence today. One that elevates our hearts and minds into, as the Founding Fathers wrote, a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. People don't write like that anymore. One that puts us squarely within the will of our sovereign God. And we don't even need to put pen to paper to create such a document. Because it already exists. We have it ready-made. We've been reciting it for years. And the question is, are we merely reciting it or are we living it as the declaration it was meant to be? Are we just saying the words? Are, Are we taking them to heart and living them? So here it is. The Declaration of Dependence, ratified in Countryside United Methodist Church on this June 26th, 
Year of our Lord 2016. You ready? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day He rose from the dead, He ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's it. We've had the words all along. We simply need to abide in them and they in us. Through this declaration, this creed, we declare that Christ Jesus is our Lord and our Savior. We declare that we believe without Him we are lost and with Him we are saved. And in this, we fully accept our responsibility to lovingly lead others to Him as He commanded in the Great Commission. Not to tolerate, but to lovingly lead. And with all of this in our hearts and minds, we declare dependence on our Father God. The same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We declare this day our dependence day. And using the same language our forefathers did so long ago in the founding document of this nation, one nation under God, as members of the body of Christ in community, we mutually pledge to each other, just as the founding fathers wrote, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. All glory to God the Father, Christ the Son, and to the Holy Spirit forever and ever. Amen.